daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has wrapped up a four-nation tour to the African continent. The trip took him to Egypt, Tunisia, Togo, and Cote d'Ivoire. Carrying on a tradition since 1991, the African continent has been the destination for the first overseas visit made by Chinese foreign ministers. Over the years, China and Africa have supported each other, creating a path for mutually beneficial cooperation. During the China-Africa Leaders Dialogue last year, Chinese President Xi Jinping proposed initiatives supporting Africa's industrialization, agricultural modernization, and talent development. What were the highlights of Foreign Minister Wang Yi's African trip? What will be the main focus of China-Africa cooperation this year, and how will China adapt its strategies to align with Africa's evolving development goals and priorities? For more, we are now joined by Dr. Karim Benkala, Professor of Governance at Tunis High School of Commerce, Hannah Ryder, CEO of Development Reimagined, and Dr. He Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Okay, so Dr. He, to start with you,、uh, we know that for over three decades, every Chinese foreign minister has begun their year with a trip to Africa. How significant is this tradition, and what message does it send? Well, I think、uh, this tradition、uh, shows that China always put Africa as the high、uh, in our foreign、uh, diplomacy. Uh, actually, uh, Africa has long, long been、uh, regarded as,、uh, you know, our Very strong political and economic partner for like、uh, no matter is the Belt and Road Initiative or any other,、uh, you know, in future uh, this uh, cooperation for driving both China Africa forward. And also、uh, diplomatically, you see when the Minister Wang Yi、uh, traveled to Africa、uh, from every stop, and he all get those very firm support from African countries to China's、uh, one China principle. Uh, you see, given those years,、uh, seems that White House has playing the card,、uh, like this Taiwan card, for their purpose, trying to preventing China's developing faster and developing、uh, stronger. But uh, uh, you know, African countries,、uh, they have、uh, showed their very firm support、uh, to China's this core interest. So I think、uh, that is why、uh, Wang Yi said,、uh, when the friends indeed. That's the friends in need. Ah,、uh, friends in ah,、uh, you know, friends in need is friends indeed. Ah,、uh, so when whenever ah、uh, we need each other's those ah、uh, support, ah、uh, the support always there. Yes. Um. So the four, Doctor Her, the four countries that the foreign minister、uh, visited this time: Egypt, Tunisia, Togo, and Cote d'Ivoire. Why were they specifically chosen this time? Well, I think ah、uh, the two ah、uh, North African countries like Egypt, Tunisia. Uh, now this time、uh, has been chosen, especially Egypt that、uh, was the very first stop. I think、uh, it's highly related uh, with uh, the current、uh, the situation now in uh, Gaza. Uh, that's why we also witnessed、uh, like、uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi、uh, talked with the、uh, Egyptian President、uh, Sisi and also visited、uh, Arab League headquarters, also based in Cairo,、uh, the capital city of Egypt. And also, China and Egypt,、uh, you know, uh, uh, issued a pub,、uh, this a joint statement, and with the Arab League also、uh, published a joint statement, all eyes、uh, on uh, this uh, Gaza situation, and、uh, we have reached a very,、uh, you know,、uh, this a common uh, standard uh, stance. That is,、uh, we're calling for、uh, this、uh, immediate ceasefire、uh, in Gaza, and also calling for. Uh, offering this、uh, humanitarian assistance also immediately to the people needed very much in Gaza Strip, and also uh, uh, calling for、uh, you know this、uh, Red Sea crisis to be handled in a very、uh, right way and a balanced way and a reasonable way. So all of those are serving as the background yeah for this trip. Ah,、uh, this very first trip in the new year.、Uh, I think、uh, for the Western two countries. Uh, African countries, Togo and Cote d'Ivoire,、uh, also show uh, now uh, Western African countries also is very important 
uh, partner for China CRI. Uh, some people saying our oh, Western African countries uh, used to be so-called French-speaking uh, country seems uh, not that tightly with uh, China's uh, economic development, uh, not like uh, Eastern Africa or Southern Africa. But now it's not that way. Uh, Western African countries also now quite active uh, being partner of China CRI. Uh, actually, if you look about Cote d'Ivoire, now it's hosting the African Cup. Uh, it, it now it's, uh, even the stadium uh, has been built by a Chinese company uh, for hosting this uh, African Cup. And so during Wang Yi's visit, uh, he also represented Chinese government uh, to donate like uh, those uh, bars uh, for pick up those uh, football funds uh, to back and forth to jo- enjoy uh, those uh, uh, football, you know, the match. So this is the, the thing now we are celebrating together uh, with African countries for this very joyful uh, sports uh, event. So, Dr. Carla, what do you make of the significance of Wang Yi's trip and his uh, choices of these four nations? If we start the year with Africa, this is simply because the most urgent and the most important thing is Africa. Uh, and, and since this is, this is a tradition that has lasted for several decades and several governments have done the same thing, it means that the in- this is- interest is not fleeting or occasional or variable according to the situation. It should be remembered that China became interested in Africa when no one was really interested in, uh, in certain African countries, except to maintain the status quo or carry out from time to time some coup d'etat to maintain their position on the continent. It should also be remembered that Africans like the Chinese attach great importance to time, the long term and loyalty, and, and China's tradition of opening its diplomatic with an interest in Africa is a mark of loyalty and consistency. Uh, so that's why when China talks about a community of destinies, many Africans take it seriously. And uh, so all in all, I hope that this very positive uh, signal uh, will last uh, for, uh, for many uh, coming years. And when it comes uh, about um, why, why these four countries, why Tunisia, Egypt, uh, Togo and, and Côte d'Ivoire, uh, um, why were they specifically chosen? Uh, indeed, the question deserves to be asked, and we can wonder what connects these countries, apart from football and sport, which are important diplomatic levels, uh, why these two North African countries and these two Sub-Saharan African countries? As you know, there are many differences between these countries and their economic situation vary. The situation is relatively difficult in Tunisia and Egypt, while GDP growth rates in Togo and, and Cote d'Ivoire are relatively high. And moreover, uh, moreover for Egypt, Egypt is a, a kind of special case. It's, it's a traditional partner of China. And it should be remembered that the Suez Canal in Egypt is a key transit point for China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative, as, uh, as demonstrated by the more than $8 billion that Chinese companies have committed to the Suez Canal economic zone. So Egypt has also been the first African member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank since 2016 and is now officially a member of the BRICS. So for for Egypt, I think this is a special um, case, but um, there are big differences. But if we look closely, we discover some similarities between these countries, between these four countries, which may explain this choice. And briefly, I see main six points of convergence between these uh, countries. The first is that the countries have investment needs in terms of infrastructure and want to strengthen economic relations with China. They see the Chinese market as an opportunity, and they also see Chinese financing and investment as an opportunity. China is leading trading partner for Tunisia, Togo, and Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, and China is the second largest trading partner for Egypt. Uh, and also, all, all the four countries have a sizable trade deficit with China. This is uh, the first common point. The second one is that the four countries are coastal countries with potentially very interesting ports for commerce and eventually for even more extending the Belt and Road Initiative. The third important uh, similarity, I think, is that these countries have the potential to influence the resolution 
of regional crisis, the Sahel crisis for Cote d'Ivoire and Togo, and the Middle East crisis for Tunisia and Egypt. And China absolutely needs world peace to pursue its own alternative globalization program thanks to the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, fourth, Tunisia and Togo will have presidential elections in 2024 and Cote d'Ivoire in 2025. And these are countries that need support other than from the West. And these internal political situations, even for Egypt, can also explain the commitment to foster economic exchanges and Chinese investment. Uh, this, the fifth point, rapidly, uh, is that we must remember that all three countries, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about uh, Tunisia, uh, uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Togo, are French-speaking, with an increasingly contested French presence. And, and finally, uh, all, all these three countries have relatively moderate levels of indebtedness to China. And that means that China could diversify its borrowers who are heavily concentrated in uh, East and Southern Africa. And also, we must remember that Togo is the home of, uh, to the headquarter uh, of the West African Development Bank while Cote d'Ivoire is home to the headquarter of the African Development Bank. Mm -hmm. So, all in all, when we look closely to the macro, or, or let's say global, and the national realities on the ground, we can find the logic to the association of these four visits. Yes, and, and Hannah, uh, so what is your biggest takeaway from Wang Yi's trip to Africa, to the four African nations this time? Well, I would say that um, it is, of course, great to see that the visit is taking place again. Um, over the, we know that it's been a, a tradition for China for China to do this, and um, in our firm we have calculated that uh, Chinese leaders, that's President, um, Premier, and um, uh, the Foreign Minister, have taken over a hundred visits to the continent since 2009, and uh, over 230 visits have come the other way from African leaders. Um, to China. So it's the visit for me is just a, a continuing, it, sh it shows continuing commitment um, to understand where governments are coming from, to understand um, the key situations that are happening. You know, Egypt at this point in time, um, as Karim was explaining, um, is a very important. Uh, there's so many, so many challenges, but also opportunities going on on the continent. And you cannot really understand those unless you make it there, unless you are there. And uh, and obviously Wang Yi is. Um, he picked four countries. I think literally every single African country, um, apart from the one with uh, no diplomatic relations with China, you could make a very strong case for going to, no doubt. Um, and most, most certainly each will have their own strategic um, and economic uh, objective with China because they have those relationships but at the same time, of course, these are four countries which really do, um, which are, uh, there's a lot of change going on. There's a lot of opportunity, of course, um, and each also have their key their key priorities for, for China. So it's good to see it. That's my key takeaway. Yeah. So, Hannah, what do you think are the main areas of focus for China-Africa cooperation in 2024? And how have they been reflected in the discussions during Wang Yi's trip this time? Well, a lot of people um, have picked up. Uh, the discussions around uh, one China principle and so on. I think, in fact, looking at this more broadly, and again picking up on what was what was mentioned earlier about um, about cooperation, we know that there's going to be the ninth forum on China-Africa cooperation uh, at the towards most likely towards the end of 2024. That's when the most forum on China-Africa cooperations are held. It will be in Beijing. And uh, so this is obviously going to be a key touch point. The last one was in 2021 in uh, Dakar in Senegal. Uh, I was there and uh, and it was there's been, a, you know, at that point in time, it was a it was a very interesting kind of hybrid format because it was right in the middle of the pandemic. So this will be the first FOCAC since the pandemic. Um, a first the first FOCAC since, the, you know, we've had a full um, I guess, in a sense, recovery. But we need to make sure that, uh, especially for African countries, again, looking to really recover economically and get back onto back on track with all of the different uh, different economic challenges we've seen, 
all of the conflicts and so on, have um, the recommitment and new objectives for, for China-Africa cooperation. Um, it's also the first year of the implementation of the Belt and of the third Belt and Road Forum, which took place uh, last year as well. So that will also be really interesting to see the difference um, that those commitments are making on the continent, especially in terms of green infrastructure um, and also green manufacturing. Okay, so Dr. He, we know that in the Western narrative, Africa's debt problem is often cited to criticize China's engagement on the continent, although China has consistently refuted the so-called debt trap narrative. Uh, but in practice, how is China striking a balance between providing the financial support that African countries need for their development and addressing concerns related to debt sustainability and growth? Uh, yes, uh, this so-called uh, debt trap uh, has been there for quite a long time. Uh, actually, uh, even recently, uh, by last year, I think at the end of October, I traveled to the United States uh, to uh, uh, join some workshop uh, in American think tanks. I also heard uh, one thing, uh, saying this uh, that trap, actually, for even for some American scholars, they think, of course, this is an, uh, a false uh, narrative, uh, has not based uh, you know, uh, groundless uh, this uh, narrative, but uh, they continue uh, want to use it as a weapon, you know, to criticize China. Uh, that's what it, they need it for. Uh, so this is a very interesting uh, opinion I heard uh, from there. By the way, uh, but for China, we also need to like to balance uh, this uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, danger or risk uh, for those uh, falling to the debt and also continue to offer support, financial support to Africa, countries for their development. So this balance is, and uh, now I also noticed uh, China's uh, this, uh, engagement with Africa now no longer that much uh, focused on uh, those uh, in big infrastructure uh, development uh, because those big infrastructure constructing takes time and also needs a lot of uh, money put in and uh, even in the short time, it's not that uh, relates with people's daily life, like the food, uh, they need the fuel, uh, they, they need the water, they need the power. So all those things, not that uh, directly linked to the daily life. But now uh, things suffered from pandemic and also suffered from the consequences of the Ukraine crisis, so on and so forth. So Africa now is facing three kinds of a crisis, a food crisis, fuel crisis, a financial crisis. So now they need the food on table. Uh, they need uh, those power, uh, those fuel. So that is why uh, China's investment now for more will be, we call it a small and beautiful project to relate directly to people's daily life. So I think in uh, this kind of a shift, uh, I, I think it may uh, strike a good balance. Yes. Um, so, Dr. Kala, you know, some argue that uh, the debt problem is just a symptom of some deeper issues like lack of development. So how do you think we can address not only the symptoms, but also the underlying problems that make some African countries susceptible to debt crisis in the first place? You know, dealing with the, the debt uh, trap narrative of this, uh, I can add some comments, if I may, or inputs. It, it, it must be remembered that the problem is not the level of debt of a country, but its capacity to repay. And, and this capacity depends on two main dimensions, uh, the creation of health and uh, therefore the productivity of production factors, and in particular, the profitability of and efficiency of investment, and secondly, confidence of the lenders and, and partners. Uh, we must also remember that, generally speaking, most of African countries have two main types of needs. Firstly, enormous needs in, for investment in infrastructure because these investments are the basis for creating sectorial synergies. And secondly, enormous investment needs and spending to develop the very young human capital, the very young human capital. But it turns out that these two categories of investment have deferred profitability. Even if they create growth, these investments are not immediately profitable and must be amortized over the long term. It is this structural data which explain Africa's structural debt. Now, if we talk about uh, debt, we must ask ourselves the questions of the consequences 
of the structural adjustment plans which were imposed by the World Bank uh, on Africa following the first debt crisis. But uh, from a point of view, it should also be said that certain African countries abused debt and wanted to take advantage of the fact that China chose not to impose political conditions. Uh, several of these African countries no longer had significant room for maneuver to borrow from Western financial institutions. And also, um, some of their leaders refused the conditions of these institutions because of for social and political issues. And there is a sort of crisis of confidence between these countries and Western financial institutions. So from a point of view, Chinese financial and investment can bring the big push, what we call the big, big push for African economies by building infrastructure. Uh, and it's like, uh, you know, when, when you, you have a car that breaks down and you, you won't start, you need someone to give you a hand to push you, but then you had to do your job to get the car moving and accelerating. So African countries must take control of their destiny and make the necessary structural and governance reforms. That's the really issues when we talk uh, about debt. Yes. Um, so, Hannah, uh, actually, I, I remember during the BRICS summit in South Africa last year, uh, Chinese officials mentioned that African countries now want China to shift its focus from building infrastructure on the continent to supporting Africa's industrialization. So what, what do you think is driving the need for a shift towards industrialization? I think it's worth noting two things. Number one, um, because of the uh, because of, of the existing debt that countries have, they are under a lot of pressure. Um, they have been doing their best, no doubt. The vast majority of African countries are doing their best to spend really well, um, to spend finance on infrastructure, and have been putting a lot of focus on that. Um, at the same time, because of the amount that they have and uh, the confluence of um, high interest rate, uh, the servicing has, for many countries, has increased and is, is challenging. So they do have a constraint now and are under a lot of pressure from organizations like the IMF and World Bank to reduce the amount of new spending commitments that they make. And certainly, especially on bond markets and so on, there are a few countries that are going to be able to do it. A few countries are going to go back to back to private sector finance this year, um, but not many. And most are going to are trying to kind of consolidate their debt. Most are trying to find a way to um, to, to, to really just keep debt at a, at a very manageable level, even though that's not necessarily the best outcome for their citizens. What they do know, however, is what's going to really transform their economies is industrialization, because industrialization is going to increase the kinds of value that they get from, from the commodities that, that many countries have. It will create jobs in the economy, and it will um, mean that they have even more money generally and revenues that they can spend on infrastructure. Not enough, they'll never get enough um, to spend on infrastructure without external support, but they will still, they will get more than they have today. And that will mean a, a better um, economy, a better um, structure for being able to manage debt and, and manage those, those new investments that are needed in the economies. And because China is the biggest, the world's largest manufacturing hub, the African continent has an ambition to become the world's next largest manufacturing hub by 2063. That's the underlying message of, of the uh, African Development Plan, Agenda 2063. Then there's the first person, the first country to go to when you're talking about industrialization, of course, is China. And so that's why they would like a renewed push. Now, they've at, African countries, we also have to remember, have been working with China on industrialization for a long time. There's been several special economic zones set up across the continent um, with Chinese support. The idea now is to have an even bigger push for industrialization than there has been before, um, with more and more Chinese private sector companies going in. Um, but I have to say it's not an instead of, it is an on top. We do still need support from, as, as African nations, African governments still need significant support from China for the big flagship projects as well as the small is beautiful. It's not either or. It's um, just really trying to even enhance the, the cooperation even further. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, we've been talking to Heiner Ryder, CEO of Development Reimagined, Dr. Karim Mbenkala, Professor of Governance at Tunis High School of Commerce, and Dr. Ho Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Let's take a short break and coming back, we'll continue our discussion.
Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying, joined by Dr. Karim Benkala, Professor of Governance at Tunis High School of Commerce, Hannah Ryder, CEO of Development Reimagined, and Dr. He Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. So, Dr. He, let me go to you.、Uh, we know that last year, Chinese President Xi Jinping proposed initiatives. Uh, including supporting Africa's industrialization, agricultural modernization, and talent development. So, how do you think China is adapting its strategies to align with Africa's evolving development goals? And how do you think China can ensure its partnership、uh, remains relevant and mutually beneficial in the long term? Uh, yes, uh, during uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to Africa, and also joining us,、uh, joining the BRICS summit in South Africa. So he did、uh, has a group talk、uh, with、uh, African leaders uh, in uh, South Africa. Put forward those、uh, three initiatives. Actually, those three initiatives I think uh, uh, fit with uh, those uh, current needs、uh, from Africa, particularly like、uh, you see industrialization.、Uh, no matter、uh, Chinese company not build the industrial park or special economy zone, you know, all those is eyes on you know, to improve. Uh, African countries, their level of、uh, industrialization,、uh, and also、uh, agricultural modernization.、Uh, you see,、uh, from time to time,、uh, those、uh, natural disaster happens in Horn of Africa, in Southern Africa, those drought, flood. So, make African countries until now、uh, cannot,、uh, you know, realize this food security. So, a lot of the needs、uh, for improving their agricultural modernization, like.、Uh, Uh, those、uh, technical transfer,、uh, China has been already uh, uh, built a number of these、uh, technical agricultural technical demonstration centers in Africa. Some of them I have been there as well. I visited、uh, those、uh, agricultural demonstration center. I don't think uh, that's enough uh, in order to uh, make uh, full scale this cooperation between Chinese、uh, agricultural this、uh, company and with Africans. So much needs to be done.、Uh, that is why、uh, comes up with the third initiative, that is the human resources training.、Uh, you need the talent people to do it to realize things. Otherwise, all those good thinking remain on paper.、Uh, so now we have been doing this、uh, Luban workshop. So far, almost twelve、uh, or fifteen. Yeah, Luban workshop has been established. So they are focused on training the skillful workers. Yeah, not just a PhD, something like that.、Uh, now you are doing things, a skillful worker, and、uh, also like a vocational, vocational training.、Uh, those uh, colleagues uh, also eyes on how to do practical those job. Our purpose is to、uh, team up with African countries to you know make their those potential. Ah,、uh, it's a huge use. You know, a lot of population there, and also very young continent, but.、Uh, Those education level and skillful workers are、uh, this kind of population. Those percentage are not that high. So we need to work hard、uh, to focus on this、uh, training.、Uh, later this year in Beijing, we will have、uh, this nice、uh, four-cut meeting forum of China-Africa cooperation. So this uh, uh, four-cut meeting will certainly map out yeah what are the details of our action plan. To practice、uh, those、uh, three initiatives, three area that President uh, uh, Xi Jinping has already,、uh, you know, mapped out in the last、uh, August in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Dr. Kala,、um, you know, some say that the year 2023 was a year marked by the growing influence of the global South, and African countries are a major component of the global South. So, do you see their voices and interests gaining increased recognition and influence in recent years? Yes,、yeah, thank you very much.、Um, I think that if we stick to what is going on in Palestine, I, I would say that the global South has no real power. And is not even、uh, respected by the West or the global North.、Uh, at the meantime, attempts to restore power and influence to the non-aligned movement、uh, face a fundamental problem, which is that these non-aligned countries are not precisely aligned on the same conception and the same demand for peace、uh, in the world.、Uh, some leaders remain very independent and aligned with the current great powers. 
This is why a multipolar world has become a requirement to save the world, in fact. But when I say a multipolar world, I, I do not mean a return to some kind of Cold War. We must understand that only win-win strategies can save the world or even save us from a world where the dominant, by eliminating the dominated, eliminate themselves. That's why a major change in the global governance is urgent. If the global south has no voice, the global north will not save the planet and he will not save himself. So um, once again, I'm, I'm thinking about this win-win uh, approach to global issues. The global south for now has no power, but this is very pity for, for the whole world. That's it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Hannah, uh, actually, in in recent years, many uh, major players such as uh, the U.S. or some European countries, they are increasingly showing interest in African in Africa's development and stepping up their engagement with the continent. Uh, so, do you see this as a sign of um, the growing importance of African countries, or what factors do you think have contributed to this growing interest? Well, I wish it was a sign of. Um... <laughs> Of, of increasing interest in a sense that there, there, there are many people um, and analysts and, and policymakers who, who genuinely want to work with the continent, work um, for development on the continent in US, Europe and elsewhere, most definitely. I think the, the cloud over this, however, is a general um, and it comes it comes to the core of this question of, of agency. Yes, we have we have also seen in 2023 in, the increasing opportunities that African leaders have taken up and pushed for, in fact, in order to have a greater say in global affairs. We've seen, um, for instance, the African Union finally joining um, the G20. It should have been in the G20 from the beginning, um, but finally in 2023 it happened. Um, you know, and this is a decades-year-old institution, finally the same recognition as, as the European Union has. Um, and African countries have really had to fight very much, however, um, in order to get there. However, I think definitely China has been a spur to, um, to many of the um, other bilateral partners to say, you know, why aren't you doing as much as China? That's what African some African countries have been able to say and, you know, kind of imply at least, why aren't you investing in infrastructure? Why aren't you um, uh, supporting our development in the same way? Why aren't you shifting towards industrialization like we demand um, of, of our other development partners and as, as we've been able to get um, from China? And I think China has shown that when you do listen, um, when you do uh, listen to the priorities of African governments, then you really will deliver and that you can deliver. So in a sense, China, the Chinese relationship with African countries has shown up um, some of the old old bilateral relationships, but I think there's still a very, very long way to go. Um, there are, for example, concerns that new, uh, so-called new commitments or um, uh, new programs by European Union are just a shifting of um, other of previous commitments or um, they're just a, delivering on business as usual anyway. There are concerns that um, nothing is really changing on the ground, even if perhaps there's a little bit more political engagement. So, and, and also I think the even bigger concern is, is the engagement really going to be in Africa's strategic interest um, in terms of structural transformation of our economies, or is the engagement going to be um, uh, not necessarily in, in, in that direction? Is it just going to be the same old, the same old? And it is on the on the part of African leaders and governments that really need to push for that to happen and to really get the most out of every single bilateral partnership that they have. Okay, Hannah, I think you raised a very interesting point. So, uh, do African countries see the competition? Uh, maybe I can put it that way: the competition between a major powers as an opportunity to secure better deals, or does it actually create a challenging environment where? they must constantly navigate competing interests yeah i i would say that um for some some countries might see it might see it that way but I, I think the vast majority of african governments um will find it useful to be able to not have competition i think 
there are some ways in which they actually would rather collaboration in some ways and to be able, for example, to bring together partners if they need to, um, because every all the different bilateral partners bring different things to the table. Um, you know, we're, we're just talking about China being, you know, a large manufacturing hub, um, also, you know, bringing, bringing the industrial um, expertise and technology transfer and so on. Whereas, you know, there's other, um, other economies can be useful markets um, for African produced goods, um, China too, of course, but others, um, um, others also have that, that large potential um, and they have different expertise. So again, you know, if you're doing a construction project, you'll have, you know, one partner doing one part, the Chinese partner doing one part and maybe a French partner doing another. And many African governments prefer to work in that way and to bring partners together. So I don't think competition is necessarily um, in African interests. Most African countries have said, we want to be friends with everybody. I was in a, um, a meeting uh, on the sidelines of the UN and the, um, the, the African head of the World Trade Organization said it's time to be, to be married to everybody, <laughs> not just not, to be polyamorous, not just monogamous, <laughs> to be friends with everybody. And I think that's, that is in many ways um, the, uh, the, the, the attitude of most African governments. Okay, okay. So, uh, Dr. He, uh, but we know that the geopolitical landscape is currently marked by turbulence and major power competition, but how can the interests of African countries be safeguarded amidst such rivalry? And how to make sure that um, Africa does not become an arena for great power competition? Well, I think uh, at least the two kinds of way uh, have to be uh, make sure. Uh, number one is uh, African countries themselves. Uh, they really need to play uh, this uh, ownership role by themselves. Uh, like uh, Hannah just mentioned, they don't need to say marry who and who, and you have been chased by which rich boyfriend. And then by now, you have the right to choose the who and who uh, you want to partner with. Uh, Africa always uh, take Africa, of course, their own interests as the first concern. And then they will have their own uh, development strategy uh, to see which partner can offer uh, this kind of uh, uh, equally this uh, partnership. So it's up to Africa. So you have to do your homework very well. Uh, like the uh, African Union, they already mapped out 2063 uh, this agenda. So this is a blueprint has been there. And each African country also must develop their own uh, blueprint. Uh, like 2030, Egypt uh, has made it. All of those homework, I, th I think uh, this is number one, uh, ownership building. And also like uh, human resources training uh, to develop, uh, unleash all those potential uh, each different country they have. And uh, another point uh, uh, is outsiders. Uh, all those outsiders, uh, you know, uh, it's not uh, uh, regarded Africa as a playground for their power competition. Uh, that's the uh, Cold War mentality. Uh, during Cold War time, through the Union and the United States, you know, they, they have been doing this, like uh, when two elephants are fighting and then grass suffers. Uh, this is a widely uh, heard voice uh, from Africa. This is an old lesson, cannot be repeated. So we are against this kind of Cold War mentality. It, it's not uh, like uh, some uh, American politicians, so whenever they visited Africa, always speak uh, lesson, the talking uh, to African leaders saying you have to open your eyes widely uh, to see through the China's ambitions, uh, China's new colonialism, this is kind of thing uh, coming from those Western media. Uh, this is a zero-sum uh, Cold War mentality. Uh, if you compare with Chinese uh, high-level visiting to Africa, there's no single word uh, talking like that to it. Uh, saying you open your eyes widely to see who and who. No, uh, African countries, they have their own sharp eyes uh, to see uh, very clearly uh, what's going on. So I think uh, those big players outside of Africa also should have a very right, uh, this kind of understanding. And uh, don't bring any power competition, big power, just uh, competition to Africa's different continent. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Kala, uh, just as Dr. He and Hannah just now said, um, African countries are now uh, offered more choices and more opportunities. But how do you think African countries can proactively shaping their response to, to all these um, choices and translate this into greater cooperation 
and and a stronger and more unified African voice on the global stage? Um, well, I think that coming to the, this issue of growing interest in Africa and the rivalry uh, on, on Africa, uh, first, it's quite obvious that uh, Africa's traditional partners are afraid of losing their advantage on this continent. And, and as you know, uh, Africa will be the emerging continent of the 20th century in terms of demographics. It's where productivity gains will be made and it's where purchasing power should evolve. Uh, furthermore, Africa has many natural resources that are necessary for the common and the actual technological transitions. And, and finally, there is ecolog ecological issues which must be considered in conjunction with migration issues. And Africa is the continent where there will be the most pressure or pressure on these two aspects. Uh, and, and while some countries sincerely believe that we can build a win-win economic and social relations and genuine cooperation, others think that economic relations are win-lose and put cooperation at the service of competition. So they find it hard to work with others for the benefit of everyone and uh, only want to think of this aid in terms of charity. Uh, and when it comes to uh, to power confrontation, confrontation on Africa, uh, there are certain I think that there are certain rivalries that can benefit to African countries uh, if Europeans or Americans want to invest in Africa, if they want to participate in improving Africa's infrastructure. It will be useful for everyone. If Europeans have a vision for win-win cooperation with Africa, that will be an excellent news for Africans, but also for China. Likewise, I, I think that Europeans and Americans should be welcome a win-win partnership between China, Russia, India, or any other uh, country with Africa. The principle of competition, emulation, and cooperation must come into play, including between countries and potential investors. So the problem is when rivalry becomes a source of instability and insecurity, when, for example, to prevent a railway line from passing through a country, a foul is lit around the trace of the line. And in this case, only African countries must mobilize. Um, I think two avenues seems essential to me. Good governance, which goes uh, from the local level to the continental level, and um, here I'm thinking about uh, the African Union governance, and the coordination of the policies of African states to greater integration and to greater independence. Yes, and, and Hannah, actually we know that when it comes to uh, their engagement with African countries, the approaches of China and, and West to Africa differ significantly. Uh, while the West often sets preconditions like democratic reforms or privatization for its cooperation, trade and investment, China generally uh, presents itself as offering no preconditions. So Hannah, how do you compare these approaches uh, does one approach ultimately offer a clearer path for Africa's progress and well-being? Oh, of course, no doubt. Um, the no strings attached, uh, being able to really meet the demands of African countries far outweighs and is far better than an approach that is a conditional one that requires certain reforms, etc. And this, has, this is what history has proved. Um, for instance, Back in the, when we were talking about uh, the previous debt crisis, which was exacerbated by exactly these things, exacerbated by demanding structural reforms and structural adjustment policies through the, uh, through the uh, mechanism of the IMF and World Bank, um, requiring you know, certain types of policies, which really were not in citizens' interests, not in countries' interests in the long term, and in fact, in many, in many cases, led to increases in poverty, not reductions. Conditionality uh, is extremely uh, problematic when it comes to any form of cooperation. So definitely uh, the Chinese approach, the approach of many other emerging partners to um, and, and other uh, uh, non-G7 bilateral partners for African countries is superior uh, in terms of the, the policies that they have for development um, and, and by meeting, being more able to understand and respond to what developing countries want, what African countries want, then uh, they are able to deliver better and to, to deliver poverty much faster than, than would be otherwise. This is, this is definitely a type of policy which needed. I have to say, 
you know, there's an easy trap that these, you know, the conditionalities come across because it's a sort of mentality or, you know, we know better than you do. <laughs> um, but um, what's, what's good is that what happens with many other um, countries like China is that there is a mutual respect and understanding that, you know, governments uh, come from all sorts of backgrounds and one has to start from the point of respect and belief that these governments are working in the in the uh, in the interest of their citizens, in which in in the case most African governments are doing just that. Okay, so uh, Dr. He, I mean, compared to the West's traditional emphasis on on good governance and human rights, how effective is, Ch- is China's model in addressing long-term issues like corruptions, social instabilities, environmental pollutions, etc.? Uh, well, uh, when China has been offering our assistance to Africa and to other developing countries as a whole, of course, our policy, our principle has been always like a no strings attack uh, because we fully believe uh, that uh, African countries, they have their own wisdom, uh, their own capacity to deal with all those, their own domestic issues. And this shows with uh, this respect uh, the sovereignty and also respect uh, their own uh, this uh, capacity. This is also the way China has been gone through. Uh, when China kicked off this reform and opening up 40 years ago, and the World Bank also came to China saying whether you need uh, World Bank's uh, program uh, prescription uh, for China, and of course also with uh, preconditions. Uh, but uh, Deng Xiaoping said we don't need uh, those prescription. Uh, we will cross the river by touching the stone. Uh, we will explore our own way, uh, fit with our own national condition. 40 years later now, China's approach has been proved right, uh, not wrong at all, uh, because China, we enjoyed uh, this uh, stability, political situation, social situation, uh, enjoyed this stability uh, for, for, for decades long, and also enjoyed the GDP growth rate uh, with a very high speed, uh, over, uh, especially uh, in the first uh, three decades long. Uh, even until now, last year, 2023, we also got a 5.2% GDP growth rate. Actually, not that bad compared uh, with all this global economy. Uh, so actually, uh, this uh, crossing the river uh, by touching the stone, find our own way. This is exactly now China's principle. Now when we, when we engage with Africa, uh, with many other developing countries, uh, because every country has their own national conditions. Uh, they also need uh, their own uh, way to deal uh, with all those different features uh, they have. Okay, so Dr. Carla, how would you compare these uh, two different approaches when it comes to uh, cooperation or engagement with African countries? Because, you know, while China's economic engagement in Africa offers opportunities for development, some Western critics would say that uh, with China taking a prominent role in Africa, there's a risk that these countries will become China's geopolitical backyard. How do you perceive these arguments? I think that I'm not sure that China does not have preconditions. I'm, as, as I'm not sure that China should not have preconditions. Uh, let me explain. If, if you look uh, to the five principles of the Belt and Road Initiative, which are uh, very briefly respect the principle of the United Nations Chart, preserve in openness and cooperation, preserve in harmony and tolerance, bring the role of the market into play, preserve in mutual benefits and win-win spirit, and if you read the three communities that are targeted by the Belt and Road Initiative, namely a community of interest, a community of destiny, and a community of responsibility through mutual trust, economic integration, and cultural tolerance. So if I take all these elements into account, I say that this, is, this can serve as a basis for not conditionalities, but a moral contract and a philosophy of international relations to which China's partners must abandon. But at the same time, I consider that the Belt and Road Initiative builds common goods and, and can itself become a common good for all humanity. But in this case, uh, ownership and governance of the Belt and Road Initiative itself should be shared. This is why I'm, I'm calling for a new governance of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, where the countries of the global south, which adhere to this philosophy and this vision, would be better associated. So sometimes we must think on what we mean by conditions. I mean, to have cooperation, you must have the same vision 
and understanding of cooperation. And I think that the principle of the Belt and Road Initiative must be better shared. There are preconditions which come from a common vision of the, uh, of the operation and which come from a concrete experience of development. And there are conditions which are imposed and which are refused even if, uh, uh, if there is pretense of uh, showing that we, we adopt these preconditions. So now dealing with the, the, um, this accusation of, uh, of being a geopolitical backyard for China, uh, I think that the world faces real huge new threats and that we must make a kind of paradigm, paradigm shift coupled with a new vision of the international cooperation and uh, the world global uh, leadership. I think that the West has brought a lot of a lot to humanity, and that he can bring even more if he takes into account the changes and the threats we are going through. Uh, the double standards that it applies toward the southern countries lead to nothing at all. Uh, it's silence on the massacre of the Palestinians, for example, is the silence of a dead or a dying civilization. It is said not for the West, but for the whole planet. I hope everyone understands that we need to cooperate, to live together in dignity. And for that, the world needs a new kind of leadership. Uh, I mean, a leadership built on responsibilities rather than only interest, a, leader, a leadership built on exemplarity rather than hegemony. When I speak of responsibility, I think of the responsibility of African people and leaders also for Africa to be truly independent and to be able to support Africans and to be their backyard. They must fully assume their responsibility and rely on African intelligence and skills. So after the battle of independence, I think that for Africa, um, Africa must win the battle of sovereignty. But it's a sovereignty open to all forms of partnership, which are done with respect and in a win-win vision. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why um, I, know, I don't believe that Africa is a geopolitical backyard, and it all depends on this vision of leadership uh, based on responsibility and not only interest, and it all depends also on, uh, on Africans themselves. Okay, thank you, Dr. Karim Benkala, Professor of Governance at Tunis High School of Commerce, Hannah Ryder, CEO of Development Reimagined, and Dr. Ho Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you all for being with us, and that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.